the Irish Times Inside Business Podcast, in association with EY, building a better working world. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. We're on the cusp of a new year and for this episode I've invited on Post Chief Executive David McRedmond and Dennis Staunton, the Irish Times China correspondent, to look forward to the coming 12 months. In the second half of the show, Dennis Staunton will join me from Beijing to recount a tricky year for the Chinese economy and to predict whether the so-called Chinese economic miracle is over, as predicted by many analysts in the West. But we'll start with On Post. With the company very much front and centre with consumers, I began by asking Dave McRedmond to sum up 2023 for Unpost. Yeah, I mean, it's been a, it's actually been a remarkable 12 months. You know, we've moved forward fairly dramatically. First of all, we relocated our headquarters from the GPO to the EXO, which is right at the edge of the port. And, uh, you know, that's both literal, but it's also metaphorical. You know, we we're moving from an old world to a new world. Um, we look out over e-commerce coming off the ships, which essentially is the future for Unpust. Uh, and on the other side of us is the financial district and financial services are also an important part of the new Unpust. So, you know, when, when we opened the building in June, uh, I said to the Taoiseach who did the opening, I said, you know, when we were in the GPO, Talking about being a digicore or a fintech was all sounded faintly ludicrous, but when you're here in the EXO, it's not just possible, it's probable. So that's been a major move for us. Then we also repaid our government loan, which we got in 2017 uh, to kickstart our transformation. We got a 30 million loan and we repaid that in full and on time. I imagine somewhat to the surprise of the Department of Finance officials, but we did it and and very pleased to have been able to do it. And obviously that's from our own resources, uh, from our own cash flow. So that's another positive sign. I think the third thing is trading has actually been pretty good. Now, with us, we always have this issue of letter volumes declining each year and they continue to decline. And that means we've got a bigger hill to climb. But e-commerce has once again just exploded. And, you know, this December, we've already delivered uh, over 6 million parcels in one month alone. Now, you know, that's, that's three to every household in Ireland. So we're seeing really strong trading growth which is good. And then in terms of the company, you know, we had a, financially, we had a tough time during the pandemic because we had to double shift to keep all our routes open and all the post offices. And it was the right thing to do as a public service. But now we need to get back to making money. And thankfully, you know, we'll probably double our EBITDA this year and we were cash flow positive. And that's, that's really important to us. Um, and we'll grow further next year. Okay, let's just maybe just uh, quickly go over, go back over some of that. Uh, Six million parcels in December this year. How does that compare with December the previous year? It's up about 30%. um, And, but where it's really dramatic is if you go back to like 2017, we delivered one million parcels, you know. So that's what's actually happened with with both e-commerce and indeed on posts, uh, role in e-commerce, you know, we've got fully involved in it, but also it continues to grow. And, you know, it, it is inexorable, that growth in e-commerce. People, 
people like shopping online. It's just the way people shop now. Now, you know, we also like to see that, that you know, we like, you know, as you know, I'm a bricks and mortar retailer myself, and I like to see bricks and mortar doing well. And we're hearing good reports from the centre of Dublin now after that dreadful riot. But we're beginning to hear good reports. But yeah, so it, it looks like it's going to be a strong uh, Christmas trading-wise. And letters, what's, what's been the trend for letters this year? So they're down about 5.5% and that's pretty much what we, a tiny bit more than we expect. We, we budget about 5% per annum decline. And that, that cost, that means each year we've got to find an extra 30 million in revenues, you know. And those revenues are straight to the bottom line because it doesn't cost anything to deliver the last 5% of, of letters. So, you know, it's 100% profit. So, you know, it's tough to make that up and parcels aren't, parcels are much more difficult to deliver and and they don't have the margins that letters do. But, you know, that's the business we're in. I mean, I think what you see happening in posts elsewhere is they're moving away from the universal service obligation. I just seen Denmark today have switched off their universal service obligation. That's the obligation to deliver to every house every day. Now, we don't want to move away from it. We still think there's value in it. But we probably need to move towards greater flexibility around it. And, you know, what is it people really want? Do they want letters every day? What do they want? And we certainly know with parcels, they want them immediately. And that's that's certainly the focus. But letters are very, very important to us. You know, we've seen in the UK, there's been some... Uh, controversy this weekend as as there's been some reports in Royal Mail prioritizing parcels over letters and people aren't getting their letters. Well, we're not doing that. We still have very, very high quality in the high 90% in terms of next day letter quality. So what does flexibility mean? What kind of flexibility are you looking for? I don't know. I mean, I think, uh, you know, it might be that that we we don't have to deliver five days a week. Maybe it's three days a week or and not that we wouldn't. We still want to deliver every day. It's, it's, it's a difference between what you're regulated to do and what you want to do. You know, um, we still want to deliver every day and we want to do that. But instead of a focus on um, penalties and on post, if we don't do this or don't do that, I think it's just much better um, to trust us and see what we can do. I mean, I think overall, you know, what we see... I, I, and so this is moving away from, from on post as such, but the regulatory environments are getting incredibly bureaucratic. I mean, we see it in customs, for example. Customs is an incredibly difficult area. And I talked to you about this last year, Karen, and it hasn't got any better this year, you know. And that's an example of really bureaucratic, heavy rules, difficult to implement. We're now seeing it in sustainability. I mean, the new sustainability directive from the EU, and, you know, I'd be a big supporter of COP28 and big supporter of what they call sustainable finance, which is nothing to do with finance, it's to do with saying that, that companies can only spend money on sustainable activities, you know, in favour of all of those. But the level of reporting and data and everything is really onerous. Yeah, okay. Now, you've moved to your new headquarters, which you mentioned. What's happening to the old GPO offices that you occupied? Well, we still have 150 people in there, which is the NTMA, the State Savings Back Office, and they do a great job, and they're there. And, of course, we keep the uh, post office there and the museum. What will happen to it longer term? I don't know. We will move the NTMA staff in the next couple of years into the EXO. 
And then it's going to be a question of, you know, it's up to the building is actually um, owned by the state. And so it's up, up to the Office of Public Works. You know, I've, I've said for many years, I think we could have a world-class museum of the Irish nation. I think that would be a great attraction, you know, in much the same way that the African-American Museum in the mall in Washington, D.C. is is a, a lightning rod for African-Americans to understand better their heritage. Likewise, for Irish people, we have a huge diaspora around the world. I think it'd be brilliant to have something like a museum of the Irish nation that could could really be something that that is a kind of focal point for the diaspora. But that's, look, it's not up to me. That's, a, that's what I'd like to do, but it's ultimately it's going to be up to government to decide what to do with it and what priorities they have. Now, in recent weeks, David, we've been hearing from various um, bodies about how the Irish economy is heading for a period of consolidation or slowdown. Uh, hopefully not recession, but you never know. I think technically we might already be there, certainly in terms of our, our GDP numbers because of a slowdown in exports. But our modified domestic demand, which the CSO and the government prefers to use as a measure of activity in the Irish economy is still in positive territory. So what are you planning for next year in terms of your business? What are you seeing? Because you guys are at the front line of this. Yeah, we see we see somewhere around, we, we probably had 2.9% growth in for next year. We've probably modified that back a bit to 25 and, you know, we, we still see growth in the economy. The next two years, not so fast. And then three years out, it will be picking up further. You know, the fundamentals, it's always that old thing, the fundamentals are strong. As long as we manage, and of course, we can see how difficult it is to manage it, but as long as we manage population growth, then I think we'll be doing well because, you know, a growing population, a growing workforce is is essential to a growing economy. And it's it's almost the not quite the secret, but it's certainly Ireland is is one of the only economies that is growing its population. And I think that's extremely positive. The the downside is we don't have the infrastructure yet to support it. I'm not sure we're developing the infrastructure fast enough. And, you know, we all know, of course, the issues with housing, but also anything from energy, housing, any uh, infrastructure. We, you know, the airport capacity, we really, really need to work on that. That, to me, I see as being the biggest issue in the Irish economy. I think, you know, the GDP numbers we all know are skewed um, by uh, multinationals and, and, and what happens there. So, you know, I wouldn't take the slight downturn in GDP as uh, a real indicator. Um, so, you know, I think we're cautiously positive. We don't see it booming, but, um, you know, certainly this Christmas is showing there's that people have some money and they are spending it. So, you know, I think we'd be cautiously optimistic. What about the competitive threats in the e-commerce space to a company like OnPost? Because, um, you know, in the Irish Times, we've written about Amazon setting up its own uh, warehouse here. So is Amazon going to go direct to Irish consumers? And obviously Amazon is a big retailer online. What impact does that have on OnPost? Yeah, I mean, you know, actually we work incredibly well with Amazon. They say we're one of the best postal services in Europe. They actually have given us more business, not less business. So we're actually growing our share with Amazon. I think, 
you know, Amazon don't particularly want to deliver themselves. They just deliver in places where they feel that they can't provide, that the postal service can't provide the service, but they actually see that we provide a good service. So, you know, that's very important to us and and we'll keep doing that. But of course, it's always a threat if you've got that. I mean, I, I think a general threat is what I would call the kind of corporatization of trade, which is a direction the EU's moving in, which... I, you know, I, I really think we need to be very, very aware of and cautious of. And by that, I mean that they don't particularly recognize postal as a channel. Now, most of our parcels, and on post, 85% of our parcels are what are called contract, a commercial deal between myself and Amazon, on post and Amazon or on post and boohoo.com or whatever. But the remaining 15% is really important. And that's when somebody goes into a post office and posts something. And it's very often, it's really a proxy for SMEs and how SMEs trade, you know. They'll bring a pile of parcels down to their post office or we'll collect it from them and deliver them and from their premises. That is under threat because the EU is very much seeing with, you know, the level of bureaucracy and rules that they're putting in place around trade that it's very difficult to be an SME direct true postal. So, you know, now that all sounds quite technical, but I think it does... I think it's something that matters overall to economies is, is our economy well set up for serving SMEs who are the lifeblood of the economy? Or is our bureaucracy very focused on corporates? So, you know, I think it's, I, I think it's they're, they're kind of big policy issues that need to be thought through. Yeah, sure. Well, we always have an unpost, David. Yes, Yes, I mean it's it's it astonishes me the the amount of um, convincing I've had to do of of our board, you know, of shareholders, um, of people to say this company is a fantastic future, and um, and I think it's just people got got stuck in a way of thinking about postal services as being old and you know, going around houses and just, you know, dropping the odd letter and then that's going to stop and no one writes letters anymore. Every industry, every every industry virtually is dying and you have to find the new wave and you have to find where your future is, you know, and we found our future. We know our future is in e-commerce we know, and delivery. And, you know, it's now the biggest, uh, logistics is the biggest employer in the UK. It's now one of the biggest employers in the world. E-commerce, you know, e-commerce retailing is the biggest single industry in the world, and we're at the forefront of it. So as long as we remain competitive and innovative and provide the right service, uh, not only do we have a future, the country needs us to have a future because, you know, we keep Ireland open for trade. I think people saw that in the middle of the pandemic. So I'm absolutely no doubt that we'll have an unpost forever. You know, we'll have this service. We'll keep driving it and we'll keep pushing it. Now, what form it's in, what ownership it has, all those things, who knows 10, 20 years down the road where that will be. But, you know, the essential service will be here. And letters, how much How much longer are left in letters? Everybody keeps asking me how much longer we're going to keep printing newspapers. Well, uh, let me ask you how long you're, you're going to continue delivering letters. Yeah, well, if, uh, probably as long as you're going to be printing newspapers. I think letters will always, there's a value. There's, there's I mean, you know, it's, it's I, I think it will 
certainly the next 10 years, we see there being letters. Will there be in 20 years? Probably not. How does that phase out? There'll still always be documents sent. You know, what's the difference between a parcel and a letter? Then who wants printed material? People will still want printed material. You know, Karen, you know, I was in the book trade when people thought the book trade was going to die. And actually book sales miraculously recovered and have started growing again. And for the past five years have been growing. You know, I was in in Aircom when we got about 90% of our revenues were from fixed line voice traffic, telephone voice traffic. Well, that's that's less than 1% of Air's revenues now. You know, this is what happens. Industries do have to find the new wave and have to have to redefine good companies if they're well run, if uh, the staff are positive, if the unions are working well with management. If the whole ecosystem is there, there's no reason why companies like Unpust shouldn't do really well. And David, just looking towards uh, 2024, are there any trends that you see coming our way which we should be aware of, whether it's in corporate life or, you know, just in, in terms of civic society? Yeah, I think the, um, you know, I think the whole issue of uh, sustainability in terms of how it's been measured and the new directive coming from the EU. I mean, it is massively onerous. And I say this as somebody who I think, you know, I can hold my hand up and say, I've done what I can for sustainability and on post, we've done our job and, you know, with electric vehicles and, and with our range of community measures and all of those things. But it's now switching to a very rigorous and onerous uh, measurement regime that I think is going to really have a dramatic impact, first of all, in terms of cost for companies and businesses. And then secondly, I, you know, I could see it, if it we're not careful, it could have the opposite effect. It could just slow down sustainability because everybody's spending so much time measuring it. So I think that th- those directives, I think that whole area is going to be really interesting to see. And, you know, the shift is right. The shift is right to make sure that companies only spend on activities that they can verify are sustainable. But it's that verifying which which looks really, you know, you've got to take it all the way back to raw materials. If I find a supply chain, I've got to go back and, you know, in your case, you'll be going back to trees. Well, I'd probably be doing it in terms of letters. And where are the trees? And can we prove that they're sustainably farmed? And even though it's nothing to do with us, we have to do that. So I think that's going to take a quite a bit of working out. And the first tranche of companies go live this year. We're, we're in the second tranche that go live in 25. So that I see as being a major trend. I think other trends, you know, um, there's something around the whole issue of how, how and what people consume that I think is going to be interesting. We're only, you know, we're really only just coming out of the pandemic. I know everybody's kind of forgotten about it. But, you know, life is only beginning to get back to some kind of normality People are only beginning to return to offices, and I think people will return far more to offices next year than they did this year. Hopefully, you know, what I'd like to see is real flexibility in terms of people's work. I don't like the description hybrid because I think it just means working from home. Um, But I do like flexibility. You know, none of us want to go back to there being rush hours, you know, and things like that. But I think far more people will be returning to the office. And that will be a big impact, I think, in terms of 
of society and how that will then change how people work and live uh, will be interesting. Is there a mandate in on posts in terms of how much time people are supposed to spend in the office? Yeah, we have a 2-2-1 rule, two days in, two days out, and one day on the needs of the teams. Slightly probably move that to 3-2. You know, we're not sure that last day really works. But, you know, we, as I say, we want to maintain the benefit for employees. But what I always remind people in, in our offices in, in the EXO is, you know, we've got 7,000 employees who not only have to go to work every day, but had to go to work every day in the pandemic, you know? So, you know, while I'm delighted that people should have flexibility, and I think it's a good thing, at the same time, I'm not going to be a bleeding heart for it, you know? I'm with, I'm with the postman and postwomen and post office clerks and, and the sorters, uh, postal sorters, and, you know, we're here to support them. We're not here to, to have our best lives, you know? We're here to support them. Yeah, sure. And just finally, in terms of the whole sustainability issue, is it sustainable and is it good for the planet for six million parcels to be delivered in the month of December? Because it sounds like an awful lot of consumption uh, and maybe overconsumption and maybe a lot of those parcels are going to go back. So there's two journeys instead of one. Look, it's a real issue, I think, for, for you know, it's an issue that's beyond on post. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a bit like being a news, a news operation. Your job is to report the news. Some news isn't good and some is bad and all that, but it's still your job to report the news. Our job is to deliver. People order things, it's our job to deliver, and that we need to do. I think it's where the goods come from. You can certainly have, you know, there's no reason, by the way, why online delivery isn't as or more sustainable than, than, than people necessarily shopping. And there's plenty of studies that can show that it can be more sustainable. But firstly, it has to be done in a sustainable way. We have to make sure that all the energy we use is from sustainable resources. And we have to do that. In terms of the actual consumption, you know, I think that's an issue the EU is looking at. There's no doubt there's elements of a trade war now. The EU is making it extremely difficult for goods to come into Europe from outside the EU. But then clever companies in China or wherever else usually find ways around it. But I think that those battles will continue. So, you know, I think there's there, there is going to be a question. And in the end, you are right. That's a question of consumption. You know, um, our job is to deliver, and um, but to make sure we do it in the most sustainable way, and we'll do that. David, good to have you on the show again. Thank you for that, and we wish you a happy new year. And same to you. Thanks, Karen. We're going to take a short break now. In a few moments, you'll hear from Dennis Staunton, the Irish Times China correspondent, on whether the so-called Chinese economic miracle is over. Back in a few moments. How can harnessing the power of AI help drive your business? At EY, we combine leading business expertise with cutting-edge technology and capabilities. Working directly with you to plan your strategy, we will accelerate your AI-enabled transformation. To learn more, visit ey.ai forward slash ie. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. The Chinese economy has had a tough year, with issues in the property sector weighing on growth, and the IMF predicting another slowdown in 2024. Dennis Staunton is the Irish Times China correspondent, and I began by asking him where the Chinese economy is at right now. It's been a disappointing year for uh, the Chinese economy. I think what most people were expecting was that once the zero COVID restrictions were lifted after three years, that there'd be a big uh, rebound. 
And there was a bit of a, a rebound, but it just wasn't as strong and it wasn't as sustained as uh, as people had hoped. And within a few months, it had started to look rather sluggish. And what uh, I think people realised as the year went on was that there was a big overhang of problems that had been going on before the COVID pandemic and during it, and notably this massive property crisis. It's really a, a property uh, slowdown of historic proportions. And because property is such a huge part and a huge driver in the Chinese economy, it's really uh, it really had a massive impact. Yeah, so echoes almost of Ireland uh, around 2008. Dennis, how big is property in terms of the Chinese economy and how big is the problem? The, it's it's huge. It's uh, and it, it and basically it it affects everything. And one thing it particularly affects is consumer confidence because uh, the Chinese home ownership uh, rate is something like ninety percent. It's much higher than it is even in Ireland. And seventy uh, percent of people's uh, household wealth is in housing, and so if you see the value of your house uh, starting to go down, and nobody buying, nobody selling, then you're going to start worrying about uh, about spending money. So it's had a real dampening effect on that. But also, again, like in Ireland, you know, when you've got a very big construction sector, there are a whole a whole other uh, load of uh, industries that are affected. And in the case of China, things even like sort of household appliances, people who make lamps, all of that. And the other element, which was again a bit of an echo of Ireland where it was such a big part of the revenue, is that local authorities in China, who have an awful lot of of spending power generally and they have to provide a lot of services, a lot of their revenue comes from leasing land. The system in China is that all land belongs to the state. And what the local authorities do is that they lease it to developers and they then build on it, and the lease goes for 25, 35, whatever number of years. And so when everything was going well, everybody was winning because the prices kept going up. And so what happened was that a lot of these local authorities took on a huge amount of debt. And then when the property crash happened, they couldn't get revenue in, they couldn't service their debt, and they found themselves in in a huge bind because of that too. Right now, a couple of the big property companies have run into cash problems as well, haven't they? Where is that at now, Dennis? Basically, what seems to be happening is that there's there's kind of two categories of property companies. There's private companies and state-owned companies. And the state-owned companies essentially can't fail because they're backed by the state. The private companies, there was a fear that they might go and that some of them might go under, including some of the big ones. That hasn't happened. And if uh, you talk to people in the sector, they'll say, we're in the uh, intensive care unit and we're staying there. So what's happened is that part of the system here is that a lot of people, they buy their uh, apartment before it's built. And so what happens is you sort of buy it off the plan. And then the way the developer funds uh, the, the the building is that you know they sell these properties, then they build them. And so what happened once the music stopped was there were an awful lot of these were left unfinished. So the government has prioritized getting these finished. And getting them finished has kept a lot of these companies just about going. And what they're also finding, of course, is that because they're they're still going, but they're in dire straits, they're able also to maybe pay some of their suppliers a certain amount less. So they're just about kept going. And the idea there for them is that they are hoping they're going to be able to hold on until such time as the asset price goes up and that then they'll be back uh, back in business again. But it's all, you know, it's all very shaky for them and they're kind of operating from hand to mouth. 
Yeah. Now, if you look at the IMF uh, figures, Dennis, for China, I mean, I, I think it's talking about growth in the economy this year of 5.4%, uh, but slowing next year to 4.6%. But now, there are a lot of European countries, including Ireland at the moment, it must be said, where they'd bite your hand off for 5.4% growth. So people on the outside looking in who mightn't be terribly familiar with the, all the dynamics of the Chinese economy might be wondering, what's the problem? What's the issue? Yeah, absolutely. And the point is, of course, that in China, you were having growth rates of 10% and, you know, of that sort of order uh, for years. And so coming down to something like 5% or 4.5% is, uh, you know, it, it feels like a slowdown. Now, if you talk to economists, a lot of them will say that actually, this is the trajectory. Before COVID, uh, the growth was starting to slow. And what was happening really was the, that the Chinese economy was changing. That uh, it you know it was going that it's moving from being uh, a high growth economy partly funded by debt and by property and by uh, you know and just by really moving up the value chain like doing things like uh, huge infrastructure projects which you can only really do once and so that the that the growth was inevitably going to slow and that we're now in a stage where China is trying to transition from this very high growth model to what they call high quality growth. And high quality development. And what that really means is a lot of the new industries. And you've seen some success here in things like electric vehicles, where they've really, they, they're sort of eating everybody's lunch. You know, the only company that's really matching them is Tesla, which has a big operation here in China. And so there are other sectors where they're proving to be very innovative. They're able to produce these things quickly in an innovative way to a high standard and more cheaply than elsewhere. So you've seen that happening in electric vehicles, in these solar panels, uh, in things like wind turbines. An awful lot of it is part of the decarbonisation agenda. And then once again, if you talk to people, they'll talk about other areas that we haven't seen yet, like specialty chemicals, which again are mostly now for the domestic market. But as they get bigger, they're going to start exporting and we're going to start seeing that because what happened with the electric vehicles was that initially it was all about the Chinese market. And then really once they had sold as many as they were going to sell in China, they started to go for the export market. So the problem basically is that uh, if the economy continues to, to slow down, and at the same time, as you've got a population which is which is aging and which is starting to shrink, and if uh, you know what they call the animal spirits start to die down a bit, and there's a sense of just a lack of dynamism in the economy, so that you know, so the worry is that that then you get into a kind of a deflationary spiral, and then the other problem which they have. And a really dramatic thing that happened this year is that you had this collapse in foreign direct investment. And so uh, for the first time in November, for the first time in 25 years, foreign direct investment was negative. So that meant really that people, foreign companies were taking more money out of the country than they were putting into the country. And part of the problem there is uh, to do with the fact that America and Europe, to some extent, they're de-risking. And again, if you talk to people, say European business people who are here from some of the big companies, big German companies or big Scandinavian companies, they'll say every time they go home to Germany or wherever, they're getting a lot of grief about why they're investing in China. And there's a lot of people, whether it's shareholders or members of the public or politicians who are saying, this is a place you shouldn't be for lots of various sort of geopolitical reasons and other reasons. And so they're trying to, kind of, they're going home and they're kind of basically saying, well, actually, you know, we can we can make money here in a way that we can't anywhere else. They've got 
sort of these industrial clusters that work better than they work anywhere else. But it is a more difficult environment for uh, you know, for foreign companies to operate in now. Yeah, and it's interesting because um, if you take Apple, for example, um, they a lot of their the manufacturing of iPhones, not done directly by Apple, uh, subcontracted out, but is uh, was occurring in China. Absolutely, and still is. So that like a lot of these companies, like over the last few years, partly to do with the COVID business, but then for other reasons as well, they tried to have what they would call China plus one. So they'd keep their operation in China, but they might open in Vietnam or maybe in India or in somewhere else. Uh, partly because uh, Chinese wages were going up, so it was uh, no longer such a low-cost place to produce. But what they found is that there's nowhere really that has the combination of raw materials, supply chains, infrastructure, skills, labor uh, that China has. And also that you have this environment where government, both centrally and at a provincial level and even at a municipal level, can do an awful lot to help companies and to to help their operating environments. So a lot of the companies that have dipped their toe in the water elsewhere have found that actually for them, for manufacturing things like phones or whatever, it's very hard to find somewhere that uh, you know that's as competitive as China. Yeah, of course, uh, the US and uh, the EU, to a, a lesser degree, have also uh, instituted subsidy schemes, haven't they, to try and um, uh, interest their companies back home, as it were, to build semiconductor chips and uh, and so forth, conduct other manufacturing uh, for the tech sector. But how big a play is the geopolitical issue, Dennis? Uh, because China hasn't been hasn't been critical really of Russia has it over its uh, invasion of Ukraine whereas the West obviously has taken a, a much different view and then we have these tensions with Taiwan yeah so I think where uh, Russia and the Ukraine war is concerned the uh, Western powers the United States and the European Union particularly are very unhappy about the fact that China officially it's neutral but actually it's diplomatically quite supportive of Russia uh, also in terms of economic the economic relationship has really flourished since the uh, Ukraine war started. And so Russia is selling a lot of the energy. It wasn't, it used to sell to to Europe. It's selling here to China at something of a discount. Meanwhile, a lot of the goods that Russia can no longer buy from Western Europe, they're buying from China. So apparently, if you go to Russia now, you'll see an awful lot of Chinese cars on the street. You'll see an awful lot of Chinese products in general. So there is an important uh, economic relationship. The Chinese have been very careful not to sell the Russians anything which can be used for military purposes, and they're not giving them any military assistance. So they're, uh, you know, so it's a delicate uh, diplomatic uh, you know, issue there. And then the question of Taiwan, there's a presidential election coming up in Taiwan in January. And uh, currently, the favorite to win is the vice president, who China regards as rather hostile. And so it remains to be seen how they're going to react if uh, he does indeed win. If one of the opposition candidates were to win, that would probably ease tensions with China. But what you have seen over the last few months is uh, some easing of tensions between China and the United States. But what's not changing, really, is this idea of de-risking. And the de-risking, both in Europe and the United States, is partly for national security reasons and the idea that you don't want to be too dependent on a country like China for certain critical materials, and also that they don't want to sell certain things like very uh, sophisticated semiconductors to China. But it's also to do with competition. And so the fact, for example, that the European motor industry is very, very worried about Chinese electric vehicles. The fact is that China is now way ahead of the European competitors when it comes to producing these vehicles. And it's not, as I say, it's not just a question of these being cheap. 
they're also very good. And so the European countries, they're worried about China's dominance in electric vehicles, batteries, a lot of the elements that go into uh, you know the, the decarbonized industries and de- the decarbonized economy that we're all supposed to be heading towards, China has got something of a lock on a lot of these materials already. In the West End, as we're worrying about climate change and, and the cost that's going to impose on citizens and businesses and how quickly we can get to net zero and so forth, what's the, what's the debate like in China? Well, in China, they do sort of both things. They're continuing to burn a lot of coal, but at the same time, there's massive uh, uh, solar energy, uh, you know, huge, like uh, the number of electric vehicles in the streets here is extraordinary. It's like, you know, every other car is an electric car. Uh, you know, so, so there's, you know, the, the, the state has subsidized, uh, you know, it's much cheaper, for example, like hugely cheaper, about a tenth of the price to run an electric car in Beijing than it is to run a, a conventional vehicle. And so a lot of people do it for that reason. And so you also have, you know, because they're so uh, far ahead in things like solar panels, they make most of the solar panels in the world. They make an awful lot of the wind turbines. And so there is a huge amount of that. There was a port down in Shandong province that I visited uh, quite recently, in uh, you know, where they've got the first hydrogen-powered uh, cranes in the port, and so they're using all of these things, which you know, so, so they're so they're doing an awful lot in terms of getting into the decarbonization, and they know that they've got to do this, that it's you know um, that it's unsustainable to keep burning fossil fuels, but on the way. They're continuing to burn an awful lot of fossil fuels. It's a very centralised economy, China, Dennis, isn't it? I know it's opened up a lot um, to uh, foreign direct investments and, and so forth, but it is a very centralised uh, still. So what is the what is the government in China um, planning to do to address this uh, slowdown in the economy? It's a funny economy because it's both centralised and decentralised. So the the, 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 the 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 economic policy direction is set by the government. And so they set it sort of every five years and then they set it every year. And so they've got this big plan, which, as I was saying, is to do with shifting the economy onto a higher uh, a level of sort of a higher quality growth. What they're now talking about... Uh, they had a meeting recently of the Politburo of the Communist Party to talk about the economy, and they uh, they stressed the business really of what they call progress, which meant growth over stability, and that was a kind of a, an important linguistic shift, and it seemed to suggest that for the next few months and the next year or so, they are going to uh, try to uh, you know to get going with the drivers of growth. They've already taken some action to deal with some of the problems of the property crisis. They resisted the idea of a big stimulus. They didn't, don't like stimulus packages. What they have done is they've loosened some of the lending rules. They've made it easier to buy houses. What they had done a few years ago was they were discouraging people, say, from buying second homes uh, because it was pushing up the prices up too high for other people. And so now they've loosened some of those restrictions. And then what they also have done is they've issued this uh, treasury bond worth uh, about 129 billion euros. Uh, and that is going to help the local authorities to deal with their debt. And so they're doing, as you know, they're, they're taking some of those. But what, but an awful lot of the economic decision making actually happens at the provincial level. So the provinces, those local governments, and those municipalities, they're all in competition with one another, and they can do an awful lot. And you'll find in different parts of China, there's a very different kind of business atmosphere. And so down, say, in the south, uh, you know, around the coast, there, it's hugely dynamic. And then there are parts up in the north, the old industrial north where it feels really much more sluggish. And so you have a central political and economic direction, which is set in Beijing. But an awful lot of what happens, happens out in the provinces. 
And based on what's been going on in China over the last sort of year or two, some Western analysts have been declaring the end of China's economic miracle. What's your view? Is it over? I don't think it is. No, they've been declaring the end of the China miracle for about 40 years, really since it began. And so, uh, again, this uh, economist I was talking to during the week was talking about how she had uh, seen these books published 20 years ago, saying that uh, China was finished. And then 10 years ago, the China was going to, the growth rates were going to come down to normal. So what tends to happen, I, like a lot of Western uh, analysis of China, partly because I suppose people don't come here and it's fairly unfamiliar, it sort of assumes that nothing changes in China. What it what it doesn't take account of is that although there's a one-party system, and so the same parties in charge, an awful lot changes all the time. And if you look at the history of China over the last 40, 50, 70 years, every decade there's a big change that happens. And so what they've tended to do has been to adapt. And it's a bit like if you think about the COVID, when they had this zero COVID policy, and it was very, very strict, at the time that they actually abolished the policy, the language they used to do that was saying, we're having 20 new optimizations of our policy. So they talk about the policy as if it hasn't changed. But in fact, what the policy was, was to completely scrap the policy. Right. Uh, Dennis, in terms of 2024, and we'll finish on this note, what should we be looking for from China? What, what kind of key things are you expecting next year? I think what we should be looking for is the property market. Nobody's expecting the property market to actually uh, have an upturn in 2024. But what they're hoping is that uh, the slowdown is going to slow down itself. And so that basically it's going to be less of a drag on the rest of the economy. So I think you'd be looking for that. And then uh, partly because of that, you'd be looking for a restoration of consumer confidence. The domestic consumption is going to be a huge part of whatever happens if China is going to have a recovery. So I think you're going to have to look at that. And then the third thing I think you have to look at is this whole business of the kind of trade war, uh, what Europe, what the United States does, to what extent are they actually really going to go into uh, a trade war that the Chinese would view as being an attempt to stifle their growth? And then what does China do in response? All right, Dennis Staunton, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Dave McRedmond and Dennis Staunton. John Casey produced this episode with JJ Vernon on sound. Thanks also to our sponsor EY for its continued support. Remember, as a subscriber to the Irish Times, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. You can also follow the Irish Times business feed on X, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. That's it for 2023. So, Happy New Year and see you on the far side. The Irish Times Inside Business Podcast, in association with EY, building a better working world.